On the Empire Podcast this week, we get caught in a tornado and swept to the magical land of Oz, where we spoke to Sam Raimi and Zach Braff. We talked to Tim Roth about his new film, Broken. We experience side effects with Jude Law and talk Robot and Frank and Parker for good measure. Hello, Pod. I'm Helen O'Hara, and welcome to the Empire Podcast, the only movie podcast that has been to the magical land of Oz, but came back because there weren't enough multiplexes. I'm once again stepping into Chris Hewitt's shoes because he's been sent on a top secret but very exciting mission to LA, which you can read about in a future issue of Empire. And since I've not been sent anywhere top secret or exciting, but instead have been left here to languish unexcited, I thought I'd spice up my day by hosting this week. Now, union rules dictate that I must be joined in the pod booth by three of my esteemed colleagues in case my XX chromosomes suddenly drive me mad and I start saying nice things about Catherine Heigl and or talking about nail polish. So, uh, welcome to the boys. First up, we have a man whose back garden contains a veritable orchard of trees of wooden clogs. Hello, Phil DeSemlin. Hi, Helen. How are you doing? Yeah, I'm good. It was an art house joke, right? No, yeah, absolutely. I don't have a garden, let alone an orchard. Okay, but you also don't have a tree of wooden clogs. No, I do have a tree of wooden clogs. So it's a kind of flight of fancy, More of a bush of wooden clogs. Isn't that your art house treehouse? My art house treehouse is (laughs) launching soon. Yeah, I'm excited about that. It's going to be awesome. Next up, we have uh, we complete the Desemlin double bill with a mysterious figure known only as Nick Desemlin, a man who yesterday watched the final Twilight film without having seen any of the preceding <laughs> instalments. Mm. How did that go? It was abstract. Um, <laughs> it was like the most violent Abercrombie and Fitch advert or photo shoot ever. It was insane. <laughs> there were like heads popping off, like Lego. Yeah. I didn't really understand much of it. No. Why did you do that? I don't know. I had a long day. I was stayed late doing some phoners, and uh, it was the nearest disc to my player. And I just kind of thought, "Now ah, this is undemanding." <laughs> I, I thought it would be, but it it's was, not. It's really demanding. There's a lot of the baby took a lot out of me. It was uh, I didn't yeah, understand staring what was into happening. my soul. It was the kind of one of the Evian babies, wasn't it? The roller skating. The things. the baby was. A, we talked about this a lot. I mean, this very scary, yeah, weird CGI face baby. Yeah, it was the scariest moment. I think I need therapy. I could talk about this film a lot, but the, the, the line, um, I can't believe you've nicknamed my baby after the Loch Ness Monster. Yeah. That that needs to be thought about. Well, that that was probably the funniest line in the film, just to put that in context. I don't think it? it was delivered as a comedy line. It was delivered completely seriously. Um, yeah, a little bit. What's the baby called? Uh, well, her, her Renesmee, name is, is Renesmee. Yeah, well, that's the not the name. Is, the the nickname is less silly. No, because uh, Jacob calls Jacob it Nessie. Jacob calls her Nessie. Oh, I see. Yeah, that, which a, is the a name more of the normal name ones. than Renesmee. <laughs> okay. Okay. Last but not least, we have Ali Plum, who came to Empire a sprightly young thing, fresh out of college, and is now a broken down old man, crushed by the weight of editing the podcast every week. Um, sorry. Hello. I didn't used to have a beard <laughs> this long or this white. It's you, true. You your your hair a, used to be full and bouncy. Yeah, it's you, gone now. You used to look a lot less like Mr. Burns. At least I'm minted. <laughs> so let's start with your questions uh, and comments this week. Um, first up, uh, at NC Lowe uh, asks, with X-Men First Class 2, or X-Men Days of Future Past, having a cast twice the size of the original, uh, do you have any concerns that the Fazavoy chemistry that made the first film so good may be lost under the yay, everyone is back crush? First point on this one is that in this message, N. Clow writes X-Men... Days of Future Past as XMFC2 which I'm grateful for because I've been hunting for a bloody contraction for this preposterously <laughs> long titled film mm. I think it's NC Low. it is NC Lowe, yeah I also think a good work on uh, Fasavoy that's nice I like that to answer your question this entirely depends on how they handle the original comic book because 
it could work if mm. they in no way because we spoke to James McAvoy in the current issue go and buy it it's great it's got Iron Man 3 in the front cover and he said there won't be any Patrick Stewart talking to young Professor X type deal which wouldn't make any sense anyway especially if you've read the original text so with that in mind they will be separate the Fasavoy will still exist as a unit X and Magneto, what, Magneto. They'll, they'll still be them but just at one time period and at another mm. what yeah. if he was tricking us because Professor X does not need to talk you can just mind chat. <laughs> mind chat. Mind chat with I each think, other. Well, I, that, you know. I've, I've long had a theory that it's going to be Professor X who's going to be the sort of consciousness projected through time to to warn of the future events, in which case they'd be sort of sharing the screen but not actually visually sharing the screen, if you will, which, which um, basically I, I think for this it all depends on how it's being done. If it's being done... I mean, the way it was in the comics, there's a, there's a huge cast of people in the comic books in two time periods... Um, but the way it's done gives everybody something to do and everybody a moment without kind of shortchanging anybody. If they can do that on screen and not try and cram in a big origin story or a big backstory or a big a big moment even for everyone, you just need a small moment. Nothing wrong with a cameo work. here. Halle Berry, if they follow the comic books, can't, which is why I was so surprised that she wasn't announced, only very recently was she announced as being part of this project because she's key to a certain and the best scene for me in the original book um, what I find curious about this we talked about Star Trek Generations a couple of podcasts ago and this to me means that Sir Patrick Stewart is doing another timey-wimey bendy-wendy meeting not yourself but the person who is you know the same another position you. as you yeah, yeah exactly so good for Patrick Stewart he, he likes what he likes alright I think uh, that's probably answered that question sort of um, Tim Iredale on Facebook asks uh, with the news this week that Resident Evil 6 is in the works and the likelihood that Paul W.S. Anderson will return to direct I wondered if you knew of any other directors who have called the shots on as many or more installments in a particular franchise or at least a franchise that people have heard of and still makes decent money and has reasonable production values mm, questionable on the last point for Resident Evil. Anyway, uh, Ali. I've, I've got loads on this. Um, we were discussing earlier for Phil and I were talking about John Glenn, uh, who did five uh, Bond movies. For Your Eyes Only, Octopussy, A View to a Kill, The Living Daylights, Licensed to Kill. Now, that is still a franchise that's still going, but obviously he's not doing the latest one, unless by an amazing turn of events he gets called back in yeah. uh, for 24. Uh, we've also got, again, this is not a current franchise, but The Thin Man, which I know Phil and I both like as well, uh, four Thin Man movies back in the day with William Powell and um, I can never pronounce the name properly, but Mina... Myrna Loy? Loy, yeah. I'm always scared about the Mina. That was W.S. Van Dyke. And not forgetting George Romero, who did about a squillion dead movies and they're all his mm. babies. So those would be the longest. Otherwise, you've got Wes Craven with four screams, Richard Donner with four lethal weapons. Peter Jackson with six Lord of the Rings. Yeah. yeah. And um, I, I'm i not an underworld expert, but how many of those are there? Only two were done by Len, Len Wiseman. Wiseman. Two were done by other people. The camera just, yeah, someone left a camera on. Yeah. <laughs> and stuff Some happened. stuff happened and they released it. <laughs> Um, I would like to say, actually, at this point, I, I watched Resident Evil 5 uh, at the weekend and it changed my whole outlook on life. Um, if you've, uh, honestly, if you thought Twilight, the last Twilight was complicated, I've seen all the other Resident Evils and this made no sense at all. Mm. There are zombies with like tentacle mouths, like something out of a Guillermo del Toro film. There's like dragon things, there's a giant brain monster, there's the guys with the axes, there's holograms, there's endless clones, there's an unnecessary daughter interest, there's um, oh, just zombie Nazi, well, Russian soldiers. It just makes less than no sense. I can't even begin to tell you. Mm. Because you'd think by now with the Resident Evil series, they would just 
sort of have given up a little bit and just gone oh, here's some zombies you know but they're really complicated they, they keep trying to raise the bar but uh, just in in baffling genuinely baffling ways the, the, the opening of the film plays out in reverse and then forward hmm. okay. and, and it's all a weirdo ending to the previous film which then so you could watch resets. them in any order I don't even know. I guess it kind of builds. I mean, certainly lots of these elements have appeared in previous films, but just people are coming back from the dead all the time because they've all been cloned. It just, hmm. honestly, it, it's almost art house. You'd like it, Phil. I, I'm actually tempted to watch all of these films. They sound insane. Ali and I had a quite a long conversation the day before yesterday that was coherent and it was only after about 10 minutes that we realised that I was talking about Resident Evil and you were talking about Silent Hill. <laughs> we... The, it all made sense because they're all basically the same sort of level of chucking some more monster mayhem. It's a very weird thing. It was my privilege to review Resident Evil Retribution 3D, uh, which I dubbed Shred. Um, it, it is, yeah. Isn't mm. it, though? Isn't it? It's ju- is this? I mean, but yeah. Is that what it is? It Who is. knows? It, it is. really it is. is. Who knows? It's pretty much that. So we don't know that Paul W. Sanderson is necessarily coming back to do this, but I guess the point is he has been probably more involved creatively in this whole process than say a Bond director might have been there's no one else like him in these terms no one makes this much money out of one dead horse this well I mean say what you like about the films and we just did mm. he will ride this there's a dead horse in it so that's fine there's a zombie dead horse with tentacles <laughs> coming out of his mouth <laughs> I don't understand what's happening he's uh, an institution within this yeah. specific very small part of cinema and, and you know all power to him fair play to him people people apparently love it so you know I, I <laughs> guess never met one. something works I've never met anyone well, who likes it? these films I put something on Twitter about how baffled I was by, by Retribution at the weekend and uh, got all these comments going oh well if you'd seen the previous films you'd understand and I said well I have seen the previous films and then they went oh well I mean it'll all make sense when you see the next film because it's yeah. two trilogies back to back and I said okay uh, can we put a shout out if, if anyone listening genuinely loves the Resident Evil or the Underworld any of these series yes. write in and, and tell us why yeah in a mock free environment right yeah no I'm just curious yeah. I'm, I'd love to know as well I get confused with the extermination extinction that all the ones which don't have the number after them yeah they don't know what order they come in no I, I don't remember stages. I there was one apoc- like- was Apocalypse the third one was that the one where the virus dried up the rivers which is possibly one of my favourite lines in, in cinema along with the uh, neutrinos are mutating was that the one? I, I was on the set of one of them, and I can't remember which, which is quite embarrassing, in Mexico. And they were sort of sellotaping bits of meat to the side of dogs to make zombie dogs. And, uh, yeah, it, <laughs> it doesn't narrow it down. It was confusing then. All right, uh, let's, let's leave it there. So Resident Evil, it's, it's, it's there. Um, at Ben Hayes 9 asks, which books um, or graphic novels would you like to see adapted? Now, it is World Book Day this week, so we've got a couple of book questions. Let's go with this one first. He says The Passage is the one he'd go for, which would certainly be amazing on screen. Um, any, any thoughts on this? I have one. Yep. Confederacy of Dancers, Zach Galifianakis. Yes. And Martin McDonough perhaps directing that kind of mordant humour. He'd be perfect mm. for that role. It's a book that... Um, is it John Peter O'Toole? No. John Kennedy O'Toole? John Kennedy O'Toole. Yeah, it's a fantastic book. I only got around to reading it actually just before Christmas and went completely nuts for it. It's amazing. It's hilariously funny. Yeah. It's I great. wonder... Will Ferrell was, uh, you know, there's been so many permutations, so many people have tried to get this made. Oh, yeah. And um, at one point, Will Ferrell was attached. I'd rather see Will Ferrell, although he's kind of done that character before, maybe in Step Brothers, but yeah. he's just an idiot. He's amazing. The l- he has no self-awareness whatsoever. I mean, there's a story of this guy that lives in New Orleans with basically with his mum. 
mm. kind of the most misanthropic person, mm. but the scrapes and, and weirdnesses that he gets involved in are hilarious. He, he um, considers he has, himself a huge intellectual, um, but ends up working on a hot dog wagon. He's he's just incredible. Amazingly, this is one of those published after his uh, death, only one book ever written, genius, but unappreciated writers. Yeah. That, yeah, it was kind of found in a drawer and then put to the press. His, he has his, done his another mother, book. Yeah, his yeah, he mother, did another book called her. The Neon Bible, which yeah. is really good as well. Uh, his mother, bless her, basically um, would not take no for an answer and, and took the book round the houses for, for years, insisting that it was great and deserved a look. And, and she was entirely right. So well done her. Yeah, that is a terrific book. Um, in terms of graphic novels, Why the Last Man is something we've discussed before on the podcast. We've had Sheila Buff earmarked for the role of uh, Yorick, uh, which is a fantastic book. Uh, it, check it out for yourself. Well worth buying. And it's the story of a world where there is only one man alive. All people, we've talked about chromosomes earlier, mm. uh, anybody with XY is um, dead. Uh, <laughs> very much not of this world. Uh, apart from this one chap, Yorick, and his uh, male monkey, Ampersand. And this is their adventure as they kind of survive in a kind of Walking Dead style, but obviously women aren't zombies. What am I saying? Stop now, stop quick, stop, leave thanks, now. Thanks for that, Ali. Let's move on. I personally would, uh, in terms of graphic novels, I'd love to see Rising Stars on screen, which is uh, J. Michael Straczynski's series, which is kind of X-Men, kind of not. Uh, basically, a bunch of people um, who were born, um, who were basically in utero when a comet lands in a particular small town, grow up with superpowers and that's the kind of premise and then you know they discover as they grow a little bit older that when one of them dies all the rest get a little bit stronger and uh, that obviously causes some problems <laughs> it's a fantastic absolutely epic story and I would absolutely love to see it on screen that's X-Men crossed with heroes no 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 that's X-Men that's X-Men crossed with the Simpsons episode the flying hellfish it's a tontine but with superheroes so if they kill each other then they get more of the money and by money I mean power yeah, yeah. That's incredible. It's really, really good stuff. I highly recommend it. I'd also recommend A Madness of Angels, which is a novel by, I think it's Kate Griffin, about a, a London-based magician called Matthew Swift. And it's really, it's a very, very clever book because it manages to make magic kind of cool and modern. So, for example, he gets chased by, you know, sort of rubbish monsters emerging from dumpsters and things like that and um, is able to use um, the... London transport terms of service as a sort of magical shield to prevent people coming after him into the tube without a ticket. You know, and sort of monsters can't follow him once he gets into the tube because they don't have a ticket. Very, very clever stuff anyway. Check it out. There's a writer I really like called Tom Robbins who his stuff is absolutely bananas. Jeff Goldblum's a fan. Um, he wrote the book that even Cowgirls Get the Blues was based on. Um, but he's he's written a ton of amazing, just insane, very surreal books. And um, my favourite is probably Fierce Invalids Home from Hot Climates, which is almost impossible to describe, but it's kind of about a CIA agent who gets a curse put on him and involves going to South America and taking psychotropic drugs. And <laughs> I'm seeing Johnny Depp in the lead already. Meeting an insane tribe with huge heads shaped like pyramids. Um, I'd like to see a film of that. Not sure if it's possible. <laughs> well, I mean, if they can film Clyde Atlas and Life of Pi, surely it's got to be on the table. And they can film Silent Hill Revelations, which has a pyramid head in it as well. So this is really spooky. <gasps> this is right? all tying together. Fantastic. Um, we have another book-related question. At Hollow Crown Fans asks, what's your movie book-related recommendations? I'm reading William Goldman's Adventures in the Screen Trade. At the moment, his first kind of memoir of his of his screenwriting career in Hollywood and it's fantastic it's, I'm amazed it's taken me this long to get to it mm. um, highly recommended for kind of nuts and bolts look at 
the way Hollywood works, or at least it worked in sort of up to the, the mid 80s when he wrote it. Uh, also, there's a great, very short book about Kubrick by Michael Hurd, the journalist who wrote Dispatches which is very good based on his kind of long, exhaustive conversations with Kubrick, I think when he was making probably Full Metal Jacket around that time, but Mm -hmm. I think they had a long relationship. Those two, certainly. Fair enough. I'm going to recommend uh, J.W. Rinsler, Anything by J.W. Rinsler. He's incredible. He's kind of the official Lucasfilm writer, and um, he's so far he's written um, a kind of an amazing making of on the original Star Wars and Empire Strikes Back. He's currently in the archives working on uh, Return of the Jedi. It takes him about three or four years to get things together. Um, and I think Brad Bird has just been confirmed as writing the foreword for that. Yeah. And he did this amazing Indiana Jones book as well, which... It's unbelievable. It's got stuff about the film which didn't get made, where Indy rides a rhino and crazy stuff. <laughs> and uh, TV-wise, I'm going to recommend a new book by a writer called Alan Seppenwall um, called uh, the, the Revolution Was Televised, I think that's the title. And uh, it's kind of... It, it's ten chapters. Each chapter is about a different show, Breaking Bad, Lost, 24, Battlestar Galactica. He talked to all the creators of these shows. Essential. Read it. It's amazing. Cool. It's also got a preface which explains uh, all the TV shows that kind of built up to those big TV shows. You know, what were the ground, what groundwork, what was the foundation? And do you know those gags that you see sometimes in movies or in TV shows where at the end it all turns out it was in a little snow globe and la, 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 la. Hmm. It explains where that came General from. General Hospital. Uh, which is amazing. Yeah, I had no idea about that. And you go, oh. Crazy. That's that's spooky. Um, the one I've got, I was going to say that, but um, what Nick just said, uh, Revolution uh, the, was televised. Uh, also, Joe Cornish is doing an adaptation of Snow Crash, which is kind of a cyberpunk, weird, alternate reality, um, computer, internet, mega world. Again, impossible to describe, but its lead character is called Hero Protagonist, <laughs> and he rides uh, a massive motorbike and... It's just very good and, and very different. So if you're curious by any of the words that just fell out of my mouth, uh, check it out. I'm reading that at the moment. It's fantastic. Yeah, it's it opens really with him. He's a pizza. He starts the, the novel as a pizza delivery guy in some kind of sci-fi dystopian city where you get a hit put on you if you don't deliver your pizza on time. And it's it's nuts. It, it is pretty fantastic. Um, I'd also recommend uh, the follow-up to Adventures in the Screen Trade, Which Lie Did I Tell? Also by William Goldman. Um, Dreams and Nightmares, which is the story of the making of the Brothers Grimm, Terry Gilliam's The Brothers Grimm. It's actually fascinating. A really, really genuinely really good read. Um, and also David Mamet's Bambi versus Godzilla is very good on the movies. Um, in terms of books that have been adapted to movies, read World War Z if you haven't already, because it's fantastic. Or Z, I should say. I apologise. At Red Floss asks, do you think uh, that the Iron Man and Hangover Part 3s can undo the mistakes of their predecessors? An unfair question, because Iron Man 2 was not as good as Iron Man 1. Iron Man 1 is an absolute cracker of a movie. Iron Man 2 is disappointing, I'd say. Hangover Part 2 is dreadful. It is fist in mouth, leave the cinema bad for me anyway so I feel that that's not quite fair I'm a bit of an Iron Man 2 defender it still makes me laugh when Don Cheadle says get a roof still funny for me (laughs) Um, I think they can I'm very encouraged by the Iron Man 3 trailer that's just come out this week and obviously the front cover of our magazine is Iron Man 3 there's a great feature by Chris in the magazine which you should check out Um, Hangover I have no interest in there's a poster they just released this week which has a mock-up of Chow and Alan so that's Galifianakis' character and um, Ken Ken Jeong's uh, character face-to-face like uh, Deathly Hallows Part 2's poster and that doesn't really fill me with warmth and excitement I don't want Ken Jong to come back or the monkey I think he's funny <laughs> in, in small doses but it's got out of hand 
you know, bring in some new characters. There's this whole thing of just, you know, with sequels, hey, they like the first, it's the Pirates of the Caribbean thing. Let's bring back, you know, the, this character that was in the first one for five minutes and make him one of the main characters. Um, I think Iron Man 2 and The Hangover 2 both made the same problem, which was just sticking too closely to what happened in the first one. You want to see something different. Iron Man 2 just finished with two guys in metal suits hitting each other for, for five minutes. Um, and Hangover 2 was the same one. They just got the final draft and did final replace. Couple of times, <laughs> and uh, I've got no interest in Hangover Three. To be quite honest, I, I hate. I reviewed the second one. I thought it was one of the worst films I saw that year. And uh, but I, I, you know, Shane Black doing Iron Man Three. I don't think there's any chance he's just going to want to do what someone has already done. I think he's going to do something new. Yeah, I don't, I don't think there's any question that Iron Man Three is going to be different. I think that's is looking. All the signs are looking. Yeah, incredibly good on that one. The the idea of it being a having a political thriller angle, which mm. is what they've Marvel have been referring to. I do maybe a sort of Frankenheimery element and Shane Black's kind of cool snarky sensibility I think could gel really well in something exciting I can't feel that about The Hangover which you know I thought the first film was probably a little overrated if anything oh, I, I, it was funny don't yeah. get me wrong and it deserved its success to a point but I mean I couldn't see it as a springboard for it it didn't have, it seemed to be falling ideas falling out of it that would you know necessitate a franchise well, listen. I mean, I'm I'm not giving up on the fr- the uh, third Hangover just yet. It, it's possible. We haven't seen the trailer yet. That's going to be out probably by the time you're listening to this. Um, but uh, you know, I think it, it could still surprise us. They're definitely going for a different structure this time. So let's just kind of keep our fingers crossed and maybe not get our expectations too high. But mind, don't open, worry I about think. that. <laughs> I guess the ma- the major thing for me is that I really enjoy spending time with Robert Downey Jr. playing Tony Stark. Yeah. don't really enjoy didn't really enjoy spending that much time with those characters in the hangover in the same way well, fair enough they're, they're not meant to be as likeable but um, you know it is our job to keep open minds and of course not give up <laughs> mm. <laughs> okay uh, last question at Dan Leatherdale asks if you could bring back five movie stars from the dead which ones would they be I've got a question does this mean as zombies? Because if so, I'm picking Laurel and Hardy because they they would not be able to kill you. That is, <laughs> that be is trying to it's put a good tactic. Upstairs, yeah, yeah, falling over. Let's assume, for the purposes of the question, that we're bringing them back at the height of their powers, in good health, without the desire to eat our brains. Oh. Do you think Dan really means zombies? I don't think. I mean, <laughs> looking at the subtext and exploring it for. For that angle, I'm not seeing. I'm not I've reading. I'm watching too much Walking there, Dead. There are two movie-related things I'd like to bring back from the dead. One is my Frank and Weenie mug, which got thrown away yesterday, and the other one is Audrey Hepburn, so she can sue the pants of Galaxy. Galaxy for that horrendous ad they put together. Okay. On that topic, it's not the first time it's happened because I thought to myself, well, I, I remember being a little bit pissed off about this sort of thing before, and it turns out Fred Astaire danced with a Dirt Devil vacuum cleaner in the nineties. That's a sentence I never, never wanted to say in my life. There's that Dior perfume ad with um, Grace Kelly and Marilyn Monroe. That's totally tasteful. And we've also got John Wayne selling Coors Light beer. Now, do you think that John Wayne would drink Coors Light? Let's not be promoting rubbish beer on this podcast. Well, that's what Let's I'm saying. Let's not be, you know, saying that beer is rubbish. Let's keep a neutral tone. <laughs> beer is good-ish. Maybe, if you like beer. Drink beer if you like, if you want to. Okay then. Um, personally, I'd bring back Mae West um, because she was hilarious. She was one of the great wits of her day. She was a playwright as well as an actress, um, and and she said very very smart things. And she was a teetotaler, um, which which I enjoy. So she would be top of my list. Um, Jack Lemon because he'd be a, a giggle. Let's face it, Claude Rains because we could always do with a bit of Claude Rains. 
and Betty Davis because um, she could throw a martini in somebody's face like nobody's business, I suspect. I'd like to see that. And Monroe, because, hey, why not? That's top. I mean, we've come up with quite facetious answers. (laughs) I'd bring back uh, Donald O'Connor from Singing in the Rain just to do backflips in the office. That would be amazing. cheer us up. Yeah. We'd be like, middle of the day, we could just go, Donald, quick, backflip. Do a backflip off the wall. Through the wall. Hmm. Oh, yeah, yeah. That's, a, that's a danger. He might go through the wall in our office. Yeah, it's probably for, for, for the best for him that he, he's not brought back by us to do yeah. backflips. Sorry, Donald. Okay, thanks for those posers, you clever people. Um, if you'd like to have your question read out on the show, you can email us at podcast at empiremagazine.com. Uh, you can Facebook us where we are, Empire Magazine, uh, unsurprisingly. And on Twitter, we are at Empire Magazine, and the hashtag is Empire Podcast, because otherwise we won't see it. So do get in touch. Now that all those pesky queries are out of the way, let's get on with the interviewing. So first up this week, we have a man who's been a stalwart of British cinema for a good couple of decades now. He turned in not one but two iconic performances for Quentin Tarantino in Reservoir Dogs and Pulp Fiction, uh, menaced last week's podcast Mark Wahlberg in Planet of the Apes, and even tangled with the Incredible Hulk, which shows you that he is a brave man indeed. Um, But later he showed even greater bravery by stepping into the pod booth to be grilled by Phil DeSemlin and Ali Plum, and here are the results. We are incredibly stoked and and pleased to to welcome Tim Roth. To the Empire Podcast. Thank you so much for coming in to speak to oh, us, Tim. Welcome. He's a lovely man yeah. with a good heart, Archie. To, uh, your yeah. character. He's one of the probably one of the nicest guys you've played, I'd imagine. Um, one of them. I, th- I found him a fascinating guy. I mean, he's very. Um, he's has such a good heart, and he's such. He loves his children, but in an, it's, but it's not um it's not a kind of it's not sickly and it's not sweet or anything like that. It's just normal, but good normal. He's got a lot of integrity and a lot of heart, um, but he's busy. You know, he's just trying to get the kids through school, and you know, he's distracted by. Yeah, this might be going a bit far, but it reminded me a little bit of um, Atticus Finch in the kind of. It's it's what it has a link because it, I think what the writer of the book did was take the the characters and then spin them in the, into a, a London world, a London sort of world. So I think there is a connection. There was, he was Archie the, and then there was um, Boo Radley would be the yeah. guy across the street then the skunk is Scout mm. you know and, and so yeah Just to explain there are three families on this street it's a cul-de-sac in a kind of a nondescript area of, yeah. of Greater London yeah. and what struck me about this film when you're introduced to these three families one of them is a kind of a council estate type family uh, which are, are finding it difficult to, to cope with the, uh, the death of the mother uh, we have a mentally unwell is that the right way of saying it um, yeah. boy across the road yeah. uh, with his parents who are struggling to come to terms with how he's broken I, quite feel, I figured something maybe he's got something like Asperger's or mm. you know he's got one of those he's, he's removed but he's alright yeah he's you know? okay yeah. and then there's your family uh, the Atticus Finch type character mm. and he's beautiful wonderful young daughter yeah. who's played by Eloise let me get this right Lawrence mm-hmm. I think a lot of people who are interviewing you are also just interviewing you about her because she's, she's astonishing she's, she's, well you know it's, and it's the first time she's ever done anything And but she was the last one on the list seriously yeah and it's, but there's a very practical reason for it um, he hadn't thought about her and he so he's he. I was looking at, at people's screen tests at the kids' screen tests, and he was sending them over to me. You know, is this the director? Yeah, Rufus. I was looking at a couple of of, of, of and yeah, it's good. He had some good kids, and then um, he thought about a mate of his, an actress who he's worked with a lot in the theatre, and he's, she's got a kid. 
And and so he said, he said, do you mind if I meet with your girl? Just as, as a, you know, just thought, why not? And she said, yeah, yeah, no worries. And that one came in. <laughs> and that one... <laughs> And what and it is quite it is amazing. I mean, she's the centre of the film, so there's no mm. there's, you should be asking about her. You know, um, she can't come into this school school night. So she um, she is this kid. I don't know how to. First of all, she's a really proper actor. There's no there's no question. None of this is um, is an accident. Once she figured out what acting was, she did it. Mm. And I and I watched her. I, I mean, I, I created a an atmosphere in which we could have a, a, a rapport. And once she once she became part of that, that back and forth, it became. Then it was a real. It was an acting job. She's really, really very very good indeed. This is your first your first British film for mm. some time. Um, mm. Welcome back. It's nice to have yeah. you back on these shores. I can't think of a more. English setting I mean I know there are yeah. cul-de-sacs in America I don't think they're called cul-de-sacs it felt but like I mean I, I, although I think the subject could be handled anywhere um, it, it was it was nice to, I'll tell you what it was, I wasn't looking for a British film I was looking for a film like this you know because um, you always are but um, it was definitely nice uh, to come back and do something that you in your heart knew was good I mean, it's a it's a good good film. This and 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 it was, and also working. I love working with first time directors. But when you get someone that's quite, it's quite clearly a kind of a, a serious, an intellect, a really grown up mind at work. Um, you know, you're in good hands. Yeah. He's one of those annoying guys that can do everything. He's he one of those he, guys. he did. I, I was yeah. reading up on him. He's done an opera, yeah. stage plays. Did the soundtrack with Damon Alban of Blur, yeah. I gather. This yeah, well, Damon Norris. did the yeah. yeah. Norris. He did the um, well. Damon wrote the wrote an opera, and he directed that. That's where that connection came from. And and then Damon did our music as well for the film. I hadn't actually twigged that you were on the front cover of a of an album, not too oh, long yeah, ago. Yeah, yeah. Manic Street Preachers. The Manic Street Preachers. So possibly if Blur get back together. Oh yeah, well Blur seems to be Phil Daniels' world. Mm. You know, I was always jealous of that. <laughs> Cause I, I, Phil Daniels is. Obviously, I've worked with him. Um, my second ever job. But I was so enamoured when I worked with him. I could barely come keep it. Really? Going. Oh yeah. Was that a quadrophenia thing? Scum and quadrophenia. Yeah. Scum was what uh, reason I became an actor was Ray Winstone and, and Alan Clark directed it and all that. it was incredible. But um, but when I was working with Phil, you know, that's the. I mean, that that's quadrophenia. I mean, you, you know. Yeah. Serious. Serious stuff. Yeah, we, moment we, in time just, stuff. Everyone loved him. Yeah. But, but so is Alan Clark's work, which is kind of where you started. Mm -hmm. And as you just mentioned, yeah. the reason you became an actor, which is a big statement. Yeah, and, from and, Ray. Actually. And there you were, made in made in Britain. Yeah, right at the very beginning of your career, working yeah. with one of your heroes. Yeah, it was quite extraordinary, um, lucky chance. But it, you know, but I remember going to see Scum and coming out of the uh, festival. The Ray, the way that Ray walks in Scum, mm. is just the bollocks, you know, and I, and that's what got him the job. By the way, I, I, was was he? He came in, I think, to do some sort of one-liner extra work. I was like, I can't, I don't know the story, but I know this is the truth because I remember Alan told me about it. Um, and then he was walking down the corridor, uh, or wherever they were, and he had that walk, and, and Alan went, "Oi!" <laughs> 
and, I, and from one thing led to another and that was it hey we had this uh, this thing we do called IMD Bunker because a lot of stuff on IMDB oh yeah is kind of made up or appears from maybe it's said in jest and gets written down mm. and suddenly it becomes enshrined oh you one of those trivia trivia stuff. yeah one of those is that you used to do the occasional bit of bartending well I'll tell you what that was that <laughs> is true I was a bartender when I was at college I, I used to work in a bar reason being you could nick beer and so I kind of knew a bit how, how my way around a bar and then I went to I was in New York working with Drew Barrymore we were doing a film with Woody Allen at the time and she took me to she turned 21 on that film and she took me to this um, what at the time was a Hells Angels bar in, in um, over by the meatpacking district and that's all changed now and um, the guy who owned it and the woman who owned it were just brilliant they were really good and it became a place where we would hang out and you got no trouble like it, you know I, I would go there and it was like the, the bikers would ride their bikes in the bar and all that <laughs> stuff it was very serious <laughs> but they looked after you so you could just have a pint and there was no hassle from any from anyone, you know. And if there was, it, it only lasted very briefly. <laughs> and occasionally, I would work behind the bar just for a laugh with the guys. But immediately, the word got out, and that was it. I got busted. Bar. I was serving a, a bar when I think someone from the New York Post walked in, and that was it. Oh, tell me you were making these Hells Angels martinis. I wasn't. I, it was. It's not that kind of bar. <laughs> <laughs> it's shots of Jaeger and a beer, you know. Fair dues. Yeah. Have you have you served at Raymondo's? No, but I've been in it. It's what's terrific. it like? I've got a vision. It's a of... pub. It's just a pub in his house. It's, no, he's no, no. People. Oh. Um, most people have a bar. Mm. He decided to have a pub. It's a it's a building. It's a whole building. You go through his back door. You, say, you want to go to the pub? Go, yeah. So you go through his back door and you go in, and it's a it's a whole building. It's a pub. You go through the through the doors. It's the taps. It's the whole thing. It's, <laughs> it's a you know seats everything around. It's got its own loos. It's got its own. It's a real. Amazing. It's a proper. Pub called Raymondo's, yeah. Is it true that you were lined up for Severus Snape in Harry Potter and then you withdrew? Yeah, I was. I was going to do it and they were really sweet. I, I, I went to. Um, I mean, no offence to Alan Rickman, I think you would have been an absolutely spectacular. Would it would have been different. It would have been a different kind of thing. I think what he did was, was make kids very, very happy. It was going mm. to bang on for his. For his but in my head, it was a very different kind of guy. And I was just. I, I went. They asked to meet me. Uh, it was Chris Columbus, I think, wasn't it, the first one? And and I went in and I said, my kids will kill me if I don't do this. <laughs> really, seriously. And we went to the studios and we talked about it very properly about getting it right and getting the kid, getting it treated, you know. Um, and they offered it to me. And I was doing... I was going to do Planet of the Apes at the same time. I just thought two of these things... At the same time, they were going to fly me back and forth. So it could have worked. Uh, it, it, it could have worked. But it would have killed you. Probably. <laughs> yeah. But it was defi- I was definitely intrigued by it. And I, and I, and I think it... And, you know, but I'm, I, I don't think I was ready to be on a lunchbox, you know. I mm. was quite scared by that um, element of it. But you did do one big blockbuster mm. with The Incredible Hulk. But yeah, at yeah, least yeah. your character with that was definitely not lunchbox friendly. No, he wasn't. It, it was, I, quite, I really had a good time. I, I had, can imagine. I have to say, we were tearing around and tearing up Brazil, you know. <laughs> and... Um, and Toronto was terrific. I found this fantastic place to live out there. And I lived in a little house in a back alley and in this in a hippie neighborhood, which is a tiny little neighborhood. And I really liked it. I loved, uh, and, and uh, you know, with the director who was, you know, he really knew, knew what he was doing. 
it was great. I just I went about my business as mm. um, it was very very enjoyable, and and also I'm flying around with you know heading helicopters and you know, mucking about. The kids were happy. They liked that film because it's actually. I mean, although it wasn't a big success commercially necessarily, it was a. It was one of those. It was one of those first attempts at doing one of those things and being fairly grown up about it. Mm, yeah. They didn't feel they were being preached at, and they were the reason I did it anyway. It's just for them. I read a couple of interviews with you where you you are you are a cinephile and you've, you've talked about your love of movies, old mm. movies. Um, I was wondering whether you had any recommendations of films that you wish more people had seen, little gems in your collection that you... There's a film I think people should watch. Um, no, I think it's Carol Reed directed it, and it's... But it has two different titles. The one that I know of, which may be the American one, is Fallen Idol. Yes. Which is a great film with Ralph Richardson in in the in in a it's it's a disturbing film about a kid who thinks he sees something he doesn't, and he's trying to. It's just a, it's a little journey. That, it's a great great piece of work. Brief Encounter would be another. Okay. Yeah. Inglorious Bastards was a possibility for a while, wasn't it? For you. It was. I couldn't do it. I was out. I was um, busy. It was a bugger. I would love to have done it. We talked about it, and then the schedule. Uh, I could have handled it, but. It was his weather cover scene, which meant that if, you know, it, it could get... It, it was the one scene, one of the only few that he had, because of everyone else's commitments and stuff, that he could shuffle around on the schedule. So he would need me there, ready to go, um, for three months, and I yeah. couldn't... It was oh, yeah. Hickox, yeah. I would have loved to have had a crack at that. And then he got this other Roth guy in. There you go, as you do. Yeah. Whatever. He just thought, yeah. well, get the other one. Get the other one. I wanted to take you back, I hope this is okay to do, but take you back to a TV programme you made a long time ago, alongside John Mills and Billy oh, Davis. Oh, Murder with Mirrors. Murder with Mirrors. Yeah. Where you, yeah. Betty Davis. I remember one. Betty Davis, though. Betty Davis. This, this is a uh, Miss Marple mystery, oh, in case yeah. you guys are wondering. And, and, and bless them all, not a very good one. Um, but I had Helen Hayes, John Mills, and, and, um, and uh, Betty Davis in there. And... Um, and a lot of other folk too, by the way. And we did, we did have a bit of a laugh making it. We did, we very much did. Who's the woman, the fantastic actress? Frances, uh, she was in Rising Damp with Leonard Rossiter and stuff, Frances. We'll have to look it up. Anyway, me and her got on like a house on fire. So we were hanging out and they had us all in this stately home in the countryside. There were several of them. And they gave you rooms in these mansions, you know, and we... <laughs> heard this ruckus screaming and shouting and all of this stuff going on so we come out in the corridor we were, we were tucked up in a room laughing and stuff and we come out in the corridor and the, all the lights were off for some reason in the, in the hallway and we come along and we start hearing this I didn't travel so many thousands of miles across the world to da 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 you know and all this kind of, there was a tantrum going on it was <laughs> Betty Davis right and Betty Davis was tough as no, I think she was great. She used to come down and watch me work. She had, she used to smoke cigarettes and she put them out. And I noticed all the props guys would collect the cigarette butts and they were setting them in domes of resin, <laughs> and selling them. Jurassic Park stuff. Oh no, full on. So, um, so and so we were listening at the door and suddenly the door bursts open and we're caught completely caught and her assistant <laughs> comes out he's been fired in a flood of tears and stuff and we we just and then everyone just turns and looks at us it was literally something out of a bad movie yeah. and a door slams and it carries on you know but yeah Davis. that's it's amazing Davis you had a moment of Joan Crawford to Betty Davis it was she was uh, amazing force of nature yeah. tell us what you're specific especially excited about doing in the next sort of 12 months or so I've got I've got a few things I'm look, I've, I've, I've landed a few 
good scripts to look at, but whether they get made or not, I don't know. You know, um, but there is one that's r- r- kind of interesting is um, Jennifer Lynch, David Lynch's kid, is going to do a film, and I think David's now going to play my dad in it. So I'll be acting opposite him, which I think will be really weird. That's, and that's called Fall from Grace. And well, hopefully we'll get that done, um, you know, within the next few months. I don't know. Have you seen any scripts that have made you think, yeah, I want to have another go at directing? Yes, I've got a couple of those. Really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And that's a question of just getting financing in place or... No, it's, it's a matter of me committing to it and just mm. saying, okay, I'm going to take two years off now and direct. Oh, wow. So at the moment, um, I just want to get the kids in, into college and do all of that stuff. And then once that's settled, um, then I'll really start seriously thinking. Really? About it. Well, that's yeah. fantastic news. Yeah. Look forward to seeing that. Thank you so much. Thank you. Tim, it's been a real pleasure. Cheers, man. I was scared before that interview. I was scared of Tim Roth. I was a bit nervous. But he's actually a very pleasant, very likeable, uh, lovely chap. But he played all those bad guys. Do you mean he was I pretending? Know. I know, right? Well, to be honest, I just wanted to make sure that we definitely said the word lovely after we uh, interviewed someone, because if we don't, something horrible is going to happen. We have to refer to our podcasts as lovely. They are all lovely, aren't they? All right, well, uh, let's have some movie news, shall we? Phil, what have you got for us? Well, I don't think there's anyone that doesn't know this, so I'll keep it brief, but Sam Mendes will not be returning for Bond 24. (gasps) We heard that from the man himself, and uh, he has described the experience as, as the best of his filmmaking life, but he is concentrating on a couple of theatrical productions and I guess is open to other other movie ideas which really begs the question who is going to fill the void Ooh. and um, my pick I don't know if this is controversial or not would be someone that shares his theatrical background or at least is working on stage at the moment um, is also British and has a very strong sort of stylistic aesthetic and that would be Joe Wright I think he's done enough in his career to be on on the list of people that Ian would want to speak to about this but it's obviously a job that they could pretty much have a pick of directors great steady cam shot in it I didn't like Hannah much so you know Atonement is great not that keen on the, his last film so I would not be that excited I don't think to hear that well, fine. But, I mean, I think Hannah was him doing something, trying to do something a bit different. And as was Anna Krenner, I'm pretty sure he would conform to the Bond kind of ethos um, if he were to get the job. Yeah. We, we did an extensive feature on this, so I feel like we're kind of uh, circling around our own footsteps here. But do check that out. I think it's 14 that we suggested of different. Some, which obviously won't work, but are worth considering, like Quentin Tarantino. Um, interestingly, comments beneath that feature on EmpireOnline.com gave us some great suggestions mm. that we didn't put in. Uh, Nicholas Winding Refin was an idea. I think he's to him. He wouldn't be willing to kind of uh, kneel before um, Bond. Um, but he has, I mean, he has sort of approached a couple of kind of franchise and, and pictures before. It's not unthinkable. Not unthinkable. Good, good suggestion. Another good suggestion was Duncan Jones. Unfortunately, we didn't put him on the list because he's doing World of Warcraft right now, and that's going to be a big uh, thing, so I just don't see that happening. And he's got his Fleming uh, biopic. Yeah, it just, just doesn't fit, does it? I mean, in terms of him doing both. Yeah, he could do both at the same time. That would be... What, the Fleming biopic and a Bond movie? And a Bond movie, back to back. (laughs) That would be confusing. Whoa, meta. The same actor playing playing, uh, both roles. Oh, shut up. Oh, yeah. Now Uh, you're onto something. And then somebody else suggested, Michael Bay! I'd watch that, sorry. I'd watch that. (laughs) Don't, they'll hear you, Nick. Goodness, somebody might take you seriously. With The Rock as James Bond. (laughs) I am back on board. Final (laughs) suggestion that we didn't come up with was Ray Fiennes because he's in the bloody thing and he's good at the movies. Kind of Branagh. Would be brilliant. He's on our list. Yeah. 
he's on the list. Uh, he's, okay. got, he's got to be there. I mean, he's doing a spy movie at the moment with Jack Ryan. Perhaps he could be tempted by Bond. Who knows? Um, uh, Christopher Nolan, of course, is a name that immediately sprang to many, many lips. Um, he's essentially been making Bond films with his Bat trilogy, frankly. Well, I, th- I think um, he and Tarantino are the same, that they wouldn't want to do a Daniel Craig one. I think Tarantino's made it clear he wants to do it with Pierce Brosnan. Yeah. And I think Christopher Nolan has said to Dan, or Dan, that he would only want to do it if it's starting launching a new, a new, bond. Launching a new yeah. kind of thing so yeah, hey. yeah. Tarantino is interestingly uh, when he wanted to do it he wanted to do it just after Dawn of the Day and he wanted Pierce Brosnan to be in a 60s set period piece Casino Royale with Uma Thurman as Vesper Lind and you can see why Jan went that's a really interesting idea there is no way we're going to do that <laughs> <laughs> yeah I, th- I don't think they want someone who's going to put quite that clear a uh stamp on it also they very very there's never been an official Bond I think I'm right in saying directed by an American only no. never say never again no. so it's unlikely to be for example another popular choice was Catherine Bigelow again yeah. is it going to be an, uh, you know I think American? she'd be I think she'd be perfect I think she'd be great but uh, is that a firm rule of eons or is it just that's the way it's worked out we'll have to see anyway we'll be keeping up to date on that as it goes forward uh, Nick how about you news wise I wanted to just bring a movie called The Birdman's People's Attention if they have not heard of it it's Alejandro Gonzalez Inerito, if I have not butchered that name. And it's uh, going to star Michael Keaton as a faded kind of actor who once played a superhero. It's a little <gasps> bit meta. Meta. And he um, is basically deciding to take to the stage for a theatrical Broadway production, but his egotistical behaviour starts to get in the way and, and derail this show. And it's a really good cast. It's got Emma Stone, Naomi Watts and Zach unpronounceable um, in it as well and yeah it just sounds interesting and uh, I think with that director and that cast it's going to be pretty yeah and Ed, Edward Norton just joined as and well Edward Norton he? as well yeah and uh, I also wanted to mention as a slight tangent the Shia LaBeouf Alec Baldwin Broadway spat which is going on at the moment which almost sounds like it could be um, this movie I would like to see a movie made of that that kind of email exchange <laughs> which they've been sending each other uh, it's well worth googling if you haven't read those emails Yes, indeed. So what you're saying is this isn't a remake of Condor Man? No. Or, and it's not related to the Birdman of Alcatraz? It might be a prequel. Okay. It might be just before he gets to Alcatraz. <laughs> uh, but no, I don't think it's connected to others. I'm not sure why it's called the Birdman. Um, there's probably a really obvious answer. It's it's uh, The Broadway play in the film is based on a Raymond Carver short story. So having not done my there research, there may be a short story called the Birdman. Fine. Or the superhero he was was really lame and called Birdman. Oh, yeah, could be that. Let's assume that. So you're saying he's playing Michael Flatley? Yes. Okay. <laughs> uh, Ali, how about you? Uh, I've got uh, big news uh, in the world of not San Diego anymore, New York as it turns out, but Anchorman 2 has got a new cast member. It's already got James Marsden, uh, who's very funny, obviously, 30 Rock and a bunch of other things. Um, uh, Kristen Wiig, Dylan Baker, John C. Riley is a rumour but not confirmed. Obviously, we've got Brick and Champ and Brian. Yeah. on board all that kind of stuff but we've also now got <gasps> Harrison Ford what mm. shut now, the front door now he'll be playing another legendary newscaster which may ring some uh, memory bells in terms of him playing a very similar role in Morning Glory Mike Pomeroy is he a legendary newscaster he was in M- Morning Glory well, yeah within the within context of movie, fiction yeah, yeah. Um, so hopefully it will be a similar grumpy belligerent character but with more snide quips and hopefully a, a decent line in outdoor fighting. I don't know what his weapon might be. If he whips out a lightsaber in the fight, that would be incredible. Well, he'd have a good blaster by his side, surely. Yeah, you'd hope so. I wonder whether he'd attack first. Uh, We've also got um, 
kind of ancillary news from the mag unplugging it a lot this week but uh, if you want more details um, Adam McKay the director talks about it and uh, mentioning how Kristen Wiig uh, her character will be in some way trying to romance Brick which will be pretty incredible that will be that will be very interesting mm. to see I'm interested to see how Harrison Ford fits into the tone of Anchorman because while he's done comedy it's been a little bit sort of straighter and less surreal comedy before so it's it's going to be really really fascinating to see how they how they make that I work. just want to see Will Ferrell and Harrison Ford having a jazz flute off if, I, if the oh, film is wow. literally just that I, yeah. I would pay you know whatever do you know dollar. what you're completely right that would be amazing mm-hmm. no I'm really looking forward to Harrison Ford doing some deadpan silliness there's not enough of that do you think if he's been cast at this point in the process, it's not a major, major role? He wouldn't necessarily be the kind of rival bad guy. Well, it only anchor. started shooting the fourth. Yeah. I think they probably cast him a while ago. and It's just not being annoyed. I think as he started shooting this week, I think they, they just announced it rather than... Because there were some photos from the set, weren't there? Yeah. Because so. yeah. so that would be interesting if he... I mean, if it did sort of play into his more grumpy comic persona, should we say... I really hope it does. I really hope it does. That'd be funny. I love him grumpy. See them butting up against. Well, it's essentially morning glory, isn't it? It's you know, it's it's him kind of doing the same thing, mm. but probably With less l- cooking. Better probably. Less egg cooking and more jazz <laughs> fluting, please. He cooks a lot of breakfast in that movie. Absolutely. Okay. Um, well, that's this week's news. Uh, time now for our second interview. So Sam Raimi won a permanent place in cult cinema with the Evil Dead trilogy and went on to prove that he could run the gamut from the Quick and the Dead's Western stylings to Spider-Man's comic book blockbusting. Uh, meanwhile, Zach Braff gave, a, gave the medical profession a new twist in Scrubs before proving himself on film with Garden State. So now the pair have worked together on Sam Raimi's latest film, All's the Great and Powerful, with Braff playing, well, for most of the runtime, a flying monkey. Here's what they had to tell Chris Hewitt and Phil Semlin about their trip down the Yellow Brick Road. Uh, we are delighted to be joined in the pub booth by uh, Sam Raimi and Zach Braff, the director and star, respectively, of All's the Great and Powerful. Welcome, gents. Hello, hello. Do you think of this as a prequel? It's, it's the story of how Oz got to Oz. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think we all know the, the most uh, famous movie of all time. Um, and uh, <laughs> and uh, when the curtains pulled back, there's this older guy. Well, you know, what Sam uh, did was go back to the books um, with his writers and 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 um, and tell the, a, a story. Because there's 14 books. That, mm-hmm. uh, Wizard of Oz was the first one. There's many other stories. And I think the idea was everybody loves this world so much. There must be a, another story to tell or more stories to tell. So, yeah, this is sort of an origin. What was it like back when the witches were young and beautiful? Yeah. 30 years or so before Dorothy ever got transplanted there. Mm-hmm. Um, how did How did this weird guy... Guy behind the curtain in there, and what's his what's his story? Mm. Well, I was afraid that when I before I read the script that there would be fans who wouldn't mm. want it made. Yeah, and I felt that way myself. But it's I always realize in retrospect that's a limitation. You want a new interpretation. You don't want just one interpretation of anything. You want to be open to new ideas. And uh, well, and you, you must know, have had some of that experience with, uh, with the sacred text of Spider Man mm-hmm. for people. Yeah. I mean, you must have come across some of that, right? It's very similar because Spider-Man, when I made the first three Spider-Man movies, they came with a great history to them. People had a reverence for the characters, generations of people, fathers and sons, and they don't want their memories messed with. But I think the important thing is to tear up the books, tear up the movies, Mm -hmm. tear up the comic books, grab the spirit of the thing and move onward. Put it into the next incarnation of it forget the letter of the thing because mm. that's always impossible to interpret yeah. you have to destroy the book and and I really did try to do that I tried to take the spirit of love that was in the first film 
and with my actors and writers put it into this picture. But at the same time, Frank Albaum's book had scary bits in it, things that I imagine really appealed to you and your sensibilities as well. Um, and the movie, I think Margaret Hamilton's Wicked Witch, there were, there were elements that they had to remove from the film because they were too, sort of deemed to be too scary. Um, did you have, was it easy to find that kind of, to beat that path between the things that you kind of really appealed to you, the horror fan in you? Um, yes, I just, uh, I read this script. It, it came to me as a completed screenplay. So I just absolutely loved parts of it. Parts of it were murky. Parts of it needed rewriting and reworking. And parts of it that I liked had suspense and thrills in it. And like you say, the uh, that was always a part of Al Frank Baum's work and a part of the 1939 Victor Fleming classic. And how hard was it to find that balance between entertaining and too scary? It wasn't very hard. We had some test screenings. Um, when I had it a little darker, some others would complain, you know, um, I can't bring my kid to that. It's too scary. So we trimmed down do those you have, sections. Do you have, you have kids in the test screenings, I guess? Do you just watch watch them and make sure that, you know, they're, they're not going to weeping? <laughs> at some actually, points. the kids love the scary stuff. Yeah, how much the parents yeah. think that the, they shouldn't be able to see it. That's yeah, really but when I think of the, the original, I all I think about is how scared I was as a kid of those baboons. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, it, and I've been doing so many interviews for the movie, and it keeps coming up with reporters. So, so it's interesting because... You know, one of the one of the you know, it's a pretty you know, it's a PG movie. But if there's anything a little bit scary, it's the baboons baboons again, which I think is appropriate because I'm still thinking about those 1939 baboons. In the Wizard of Oz, we have a wicked witch throw a fireball and burn the scarecrow alive. Mm. Everybody's burning and screaming. We have our heroine take a pail of acid and splash the villain in the face. She melts to a pile of goo. And James <laughs> have, uh, Franco was saying today in an interview that he was traumatized by the idea that she was going to, the woman in Kansas was going to kill Toto, was going to kidnap Toto yeah, and yeah, kill yeah. Toto. She was. And, and the other thing is the parents let that happen. Yeah. Oh, Dorothy, <laughs> we're going to let her kill that dog. <laughs> That's the weirdest part for me. How did you two get together? Had you had you spoken before this movie? Had you met before this movie came about? Um, I, I'll tell my version of the story, and you correct me when I'm wrong. <laughs> I know that they were looking for um, an actor who had some comic sensibility who could come in and help um, not just be the character, but develop the character, okay. because they wanted him to be a funny sort of comic relief, um, but also best friend to, to our hero. And um, I know that um, Sam's wife and kids, I believe, were fans of mine from Garden State and Scrubs. And so they were my, my family on the inside, <laughs> championing, <laughs> championing um, Sam taking a meeting with me so I met with him and um, we just hit it off instantly I mean yeah. we, we, we had very similar um, sensibilities and we just started making each other laugh and he showed me a very early animatic um a pre-visualization of a sequence and he said this is an example of you know the monkey has no line here but you know and it wasn't even like he was testing me to, to like come up with lines on the spot but I just started riffing some funny things that came to my mind that the monkey might say at those mm -hmm. particular junctures and I looked over and he was cracking up and in my head I was like alright this meeting's going well <laughs> <laughs> so is this did you look at the part mainly Finley because you also play Frank as well yeah uh, 
as extensions of the same character or yeah I mean I think what, what Sam wanted was that, that there was this um, bonding of friendship I mean ultimately I, I think what saves um, Oz and what gives him power is friendship um, all the things that he's seeking money and power and and being a, a playboy all none of none of that is effective at all in this magical land what's mm. what's effective is being a good person and being true and um, the power of friendship and so um, in in the world of Kansas Frank is his assistant uh, Oz wants nothing to do with him Frank wants to be his friend so badly and, and wants acceptance and respect he gives him none of that and when the character manifests as this little valet monkey in Oz uh, they, they're sort of um, sealed with, to go on this journey together and, mm-hmm. and the monkey becomes his conscience in a way and there's a scene where they're quite literally at a, at a fork in the road early on in the film and Oz wants to go towards the money and, and Finley literally pulls him yeah. towards goodness towards yeah. towards helping someone in need and um and that's what sam kept saying to james and i he said i want i want this to i want you to to be iconic you know it's iconic of friendship and the power of a good friend mm-hmm. which of course you have some experience of given uh, nine years in scrubs i mean i love the relationship between jd and turk it's- yeah and i'll say and a really interesting tie-in with with um with scrubs is that one of the things people loved most about scrubs was the relationship between myself and donald Faison, who played yeah. turk and and a lot of that came from the director the creator of the show allowing us to improv and riff and you know donald and i were were, were truly best friends so we would just we, we his rule was i want to do it as written and then time permitting you guys can mess around so we would always mess around and some of it was useless and then but a lot of it a lot of it was great and some of the things that are the most quoted of the show are things we were just being silly and came up with okay so I never thought on a gargantuan movie there'd be room for that but as a testament to, to Sam he really allowed um, me and and James and of course along with himself uh, Sam to, to to do that too and we would the three of us would sit around and riff and, and work our way through the scene and uh, and a lot of the great stuff we came up with ended up in the movie it was always the best stuff that Zach and mm. James would riff on and contribute and make up they wrote a lot of the lines for the picture and mm-hmm. really brought a bright spirit of humor to the thing I think that's a great lesson for me because I, I, I it's so important you know a real and, and of course James and I getting along and and, uh, and, and, and being genuine friends helped yeah. because then, then there's a freedom to just you know he, I think a great director like Sam um, creates an environment where there, there's no wrong answer. You know, it's just yeah. I want you guys to play, and I want you to. Well, let's, we'll all find it together. And yeah, we might go down some wrong paths. And I joked with him that I would sometimes go off on a long tangent, and, and he'd be laughing, and he'd go, "Okay, that 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 would be great if the movie was called The Monkey, but <laughs> but uh, it's called Oz, so we need to go back to <laughs> deleted scenes, outtakes. That's why DVDs were made. Yeah. We need to see this stuff. Bruce Campbell is in this film. I was delighted to see. Yes, and, he's got a cameo. Uh, uh, in a grand and glorious tradition of, of Bruce Campbell in your movies, uh, he gets poked in the face with sticks. He loves it. He loves being harmed with sharp objects, sticks primarily. <laughs> it's a great motivator for Bruce. You gotta work differently Are people going to recognize him? Because he is in some prosthetics. Do you think yeah. his fans will all recognize him? Oh, and the voice is there. I don't think the so. Voice. A lot of people didn't. Yeah. Oh, really? Yeah, and oh. I think it's just about different techniques with different actors. Zach thrives in a environment of freedom where uh-huh. he can riff and create and Bruce Campbell thrives in a pain-filled environment <laughs> <laughs> now I know that back in the day on Evil Dead 2 for example you were the one who was actually poking him with the sticks oh absolutely but so, I, I don't have time for that I have to pay people to do that for me now, <laughs> now, he's, now he's a big director he can... <laughs> 
<laughs> get people to do that. Um, as a big Evil Dead fan, though, I, I did spot a, a number of references. I mean, obviously, people like Danny Hicks and, uh, and Betsy Baker, people like that, are in the film, which which is great to see. But right. consciously, did you put in, for example, towards the end, there's, there's a, a deadite feel to one of the characters, perhaps in terms of prosthetics. Uh, I don't want to say too much, but uh, actually, I don't even know what you mean. The, uh, the, so uh, no, <laughs> Evanora, Evanora towards um, the end. There's a, no. there's a dead eye feel, not just the way she's shot, but the way she's framed. It feels a bit like Army of Darkness, and there's a, a couple of lines in there that are almost taken uh, forbidden from from Evil Dead. Was that a conscious thing or no, or unconscious? No, it was unconscious, I guess. Yeah, I know. I had the same makeup team, KMB Effects, yeah. as Evil Dead Two, and maybe the same artists. You know, uh, Howard is great Howard Berger and Greg Kurtzman and the team but it's the same artist and the same director so you're probably going to get some of the same feel no matter what we do <laughs> absolutely and uh, you were producing Evil Dead the remake while this was yes. going on was that was that a big drain in your time how did you manage to juggle that those, those two balls because I've got two great partners in Rob Tappert and Bruce Campbell mm-hmm. and Rob was on the set every day basically my contributions to it were working with, with, hire, with choosing the director Fede Alvarez giving him notes on the script um, contributing my casting ideas and then stepping away which is really the best thing I can do and let him make his movie it's all his movie my partner Rob was on the set shooting with him and that's when I was shooting Oz mm-hmm. and um, then I came back in for some notes in the editing but he took some of my notes he didn't take the others but he's made a great <laughs> great movie see you the next week can't wait we touched on um, Spider-Man a bit earlier have you, have you seen Mark, Mark Webb's I have what were your thoughts what, what Bro- chime with you yeah great I highly recommend it. Did you? Did you? Have you met him? Have you spoken to him? Did he come to you and, and get your advice? Or oh, I did meet Mark. Um, I've met him like uh, four times now. I really like him. I think he's funny and a wonderful gentleman and a great director. I love now both the movies I've seen of his: um, Three Hundred Days of Summer and the new Amazing Spider-Man. Yeah. yeah, I only saw Three Hundred. Ah! <laughs> <laughs> no, I saw the whole thing. Just you. And the amazing you just, Spider-Man. You just set your your own self up for a joke. Well, who else is going to do it for me? No, but that was genius. That was like you set. You, you, it was like bouncing These a ball back to yourself. <laughs> We're trying our best. We're British. No, we you're doing, you're doing great. Thanks, man. Thanks. But I love the movie. And first, I was afraid to see it because I wasn't really ready to part with Spider-Man. I think that's why. But I finally said, "This is absurd. I, I gotta grow out passes for crying out loud." And I saw it and I loved it. And Andrew Garfield was brilliant. And Emma Stone was incredibly fantastic as Mary Jane. And um, I loved his direction. I can't mm. wait to see the next one. I imagine both uh, Mark Webb and, and, and Fede on, on Evil Dead were almost going through the same doubts that you had taking on uh, this movie. Uh, as you talked about earlier on, in terms of there's this great history behind the characters and great history behind the, the, the movies. Yeah, you know, maybe so. And I'm, I'm sorry if that's the case. Um, because it doesn't really help things. Mm. The important thing is just to get past that, I find. I'm finding, I'm still a frightened little storyteller, but to get past those doubts, work with the actors, find it's your own truth, and move bravely and foolishly ahead. <laughs> There's um, obviously a, a, a number of stories from in Oz. Is there deliberately space for, for another movie be- leading up to... The Wizard of Oz kind of time frame because there's obviously years. Oh yeah, I mean, if you think of uh, you have the time between you know, how old James Franco looks now to <laughs> yeah. when how old he looks behind the curtain. So I think you got it, some time. And if Disney makes a lot of money from the movie, they're going to get that hair black out and make him 
Younger for a very long time. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And the, I, the next movie is all about the monkey. It's um, <laughs> uh, the monkey. The monkey gets to make out with all the beautiful witches. Oh, sorry, Sam. Have I not showed you my pages? I haven't seen that draft. <laughs> but That's it, it. I think um, Disney has no plans right now to make a sequel. Obviously, if the film is successful, they would be interested. I think, and um, and I have no plans to make a sequel. Okay. Well, uh, I wish you guys all the best with. Whatever happens in the future, Zach, what's next for you? Have you got? Kind of- I don't know. I'd love to direct again. Um, I'm, I'm, uh, I have a couple scripts that I'm uh, trying to uh, get some financing for, and uh, and that's that's it. Hopefully, get back in the director's chair again. Awesome. It's been it. Yeah, it's been an after of- after the best grad school in filmmaking ever. Watching this guy. Thanks, Ben. <laughs> <laughs> I have um, um, quite a specific question about Garden State, which is a film we love with a soundtrack that we love. Great movie, and, and we still listen to you all the time. Thank you. Um, the, the shins moment yeah I wondered if was that always the first choice track for yeah, that moment it was and have you spoken to the shins about I it I met them once um, and uh, it was when it was all going on and uh, uh, yeah I, I think that they were they you know I, I, they were they were uh, so talented and, and gonna break anyway it was it was kind of lightning in a bottle perfect timing for both of us so we we we, we both the band and myself uh, met at the perfect moment because I needed that killer song that you know when you say you gotta hear this song it's gonna change your life it's hard because so many people have different tastes in music you needed a song for that moment that an, uh, uh, the greatest percentage of people would agree like alright that's a killer song so uh, thanks to the shins it all it worked out uh, thanks very much for coming in, guys. It's been an absolute pleasure. Sam Remy and Sakura. Thanks for having Thank us. Thank you very much. Thanks. Thank you, guys. Right, now it's time for the real meat of the matter, the reviews. We're going to turn to our uh, last interviewees first and look at All's the Great and Powerful, which is a sort of a prequel to The Wizard of Oz that tells the story of how a carnival magician named Oscar Diggs, played by James Franco, travels to Oz and gets entangled with three witches. There's Mila Kunis as Theodora, um, Rachel Weisz as Evanora, and Glinda, played by Michelle Williams. So, did this monkey fly? Uh, yes, it did <laughs> to to an extent. It's it's uh, it's fun. Yeah, we gave it four stars, and um, it, it's very much it's a thankless place to be. I think for a big Hollywood blockbuster. I mean, Disney is coming off the back of. I think this is obviously something that's been influenced by the success of Alice in Wonderland, which very much so. none of us around this table particularly love, but made an enormous amount of money. This is definitely better than Alice in Wonderland. So by com- quite some by distance, some yeah. distance, absolutely. The, the Sam Raimi has managed to find space within this, within the uh, within the Disney machine to. to to impose his own stamp on things. Yeah. You know, our reviewer uh, described that the you know, moments of drag me to Oz, which I think is nice. <laughs> there are, you know, Sam Raimi horror beats, which might, you know, slightly perturb the young'uns or even the adults, um, which is fun to see. The story, as you mentioned, is, is very much enthralled to the original L. Frank Baum um, story that we saw in 1939. You know, instead of Judy Garland being blown away in a storm, it's James Franco in a balloon ending up in Oz. It's his kind of origin story set 50 years before that. Before that, Now, what you don't have is you have like little oblique glimpses or nods to the Tin Man, the Cowardly Lion, the Scarecrow. Those characters, most of those, two of those characters at least I can identify sort of happening, but not really. Yeah. So there's, it doesn't lead you up to the Wizard of Oz, um, but it's kind of got that, it's got the witches and... Uh, They've been stirring the crazy pot in a big way, especially Mila Kunis, who plays the 
the witch who kind of falls heavily for James Franco's yeah, wizard. Yeah, she has kind of arrives. a tragic story. And I read I read an article yesterday making, I mean, I enjoyed the film, but making a very good point that the Oz books were actually wildly feminist for their times. And this film is wildly not, really. Um, focusing as it does on the wizard and, and making the witches a little bit ineffectual by comparison. However, um, I think they're all good in their, in their roles. Um, Mila Kunis has kind of a tragic story. Um, and Michelle Williams manages to make Glinda likeable, which she's, is pretty impressive. She's, for me, the standout in the film, mm. Michelle Williams. I think that's a really difficult difficult role to play because she's got to communicate the purity and innocence of this character and at the same time the tongue-in-cheekness. I mean, yeah. she kind of sees through the wizard for what he is, but she plays along with it. So she's playing at playing and she does it really, really well. It's, it's a fun performance. I didn't think Rachel Vice was having much fun with her character. She's the sort of more straightforward bad villainess in the piece. Um, and there is a point where you can sometimes feel the workshopping that goes into these movies. You know, some of the characters, a little China Doll, for instance, she doesn't really serve much purpose as the film goes on for me. I quite liked her, though. She I was, thought she was going to be incredibly irritating at first, but she ended up really likeable. She was she was likeable. I thought she was likeable enough, but she didn't really do a lot, you know, in terms True. of the storyline as it went on. So it felt a little bit kind of crowbarred in. Um, yes, four stars. I had some reservations, certainly. Uh, and I saw The Wizard of Oz on the big screen last year, and you know, it's in a different realm. It's a little bit like, you know, do you want to drive around in a vintage Rolls Royce or a posh, you know, flashed modern Oldsmobile Lexus? It, that's that difference, you know. Yeah. And I think for me, it was the roller. But there's a lot, you know, there's a lot in this film and Sam Raimi does a pretty good job. Yeah, absolutely. And we should say it looks absolutely gorgeous and, and for once has has good 3D as well. So uh, Oz is the great and powerful four stars from us. Um, next up, uh, we have Broken, which is the new British drama starring Tim Roth and fantastic newcomer Eloise Lawrence. So that's the story of a young girl in North London whose life changes after she witnesses a violent attack. It's the debut feature from director Rufus Norris, uh, who made a name for himself already in the theatre. Uh, so what did we think of this one? I think what we thought was that there is potential here. There's yeah. a lot of promise, but it is a very difficult, uh, broken uh, film. It doesn't quite work the way it wants to. The story is around Eloise Lawrence, her character, who is young and sweet and lovely. She's also diabetic, and she lives with her father and her uh, scampy brother, who is a couple of years older than her, in this cul-de-sac, as you say, in North London. Next door are some, um, please don't be offended, but kind of scally-ish um, loud noise all through the night screaming and shouting um, folk and over the road from them in the same cul-de-sac is uh, a couple um, I've explained all this in the interview so I'm sorry for doubling this up whose son is um, has difficulties uh, he is uh, has learning difficulties learning difficulties basically now it feels one half of it feels like a, a British Wes Anderson submarine type film and the other half feels like kind of a lovely bones kind of family disaster movie um, where everything goes really rather wrong really rather nastily the ending especially is really quite twisted and, and changes the tone of the film irrevocably for all the bits that we mentioned in the, in the, in the interview where Eloise Lawrence is pretending to pick up a phone with a banana there's some really terrible I can't believe that just happened stuff and I just feel like it's a little bit uneven Rufus Norris He's a very talented guy, and he deserves both plaudits and a couple of brickbats for this um, difficult one. Uh, if it intrigues you and the posters that you've seen that have been screaming four stars, four stars, you know, the best British film since ages, go for it. But be prepared to at least feel quite horribly sad afterwards. Yeah, it is a tough film to watch. I mean, the title, I think, refers... A little bit to the, the 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 broken Britain. It throws a lot of different social dynamics together in this cul-de-sac, which is quite a good kind of uh, cinematic 
metaphor, etc. Mm. You mentioned the the, the, the neighbours. Really interesting cinematic kind of metaphor, bringing all these disparate groups of people together and, and eventually, you know, leading them to find more common ground perhaps than they would expect, perhaps, and finding humanity. So there is uplift. I thought that you were right. The ending was horribly misjudged. Certainly part of the ending was horribly misjudged. But the acting, Eloise Lawrence is, is fantastic in this. She plays this girl, Skunk, and uh, it's a very naturalistic, beautiful, I think, first-time performance, as Tim Roth was saying. If you take anything out of this film, if, if you note this down in your mental you know, copybook, make sure that you remember the name Eloise Lawrence, because I really hope she goes on to bigger and better things, because she deserves to. Yeah. Yeah, fantastic. Absolutely, she does. And we give this... But we gave it three stars. three stars. Yeah. Okay, so that was Broken. Now a film that could be Steven Soderbergh's last official feature release, um, if the man himself is to be believed. Um, Behind the Candelabra, I guess, doesn't count for him, even though it's getting a theatrical release over here. Uh, this is Side Effects, which is starring Jude Law as a doctor who's called in to treat Rooney Mara's depression. She's struggling to adjust after her hubby Channing Tatum emerges from prison. But will we be struggling to stay awake or asking for Valium once it's over to calm down? Um, so what do we think of this one? Um... I'm going to start, frankly. I really liked it. Um, It's one of those films that you kind of want to avoid letting anyone tell you about before you go and see it. Um, Because uh, there are quite a lot of... There's quite a lot of plot going on, frankly. Um, Great, great performances, as you'd expect from a Soderbergh film and from this cast, as well as the three people we've already mentioned. You know, there's Catherine Zeta-Jones in there as well. Um, It's... uh, it's a pretty kind of stellar lineup, and I think Rooney Mara here really builds on what she did in The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo and kind of offers a, a very kind of layered performance as a woman who's, you know, got some serious issues, quite frankly. Is it going to throw a lot of twists and turns at us? Uh, yeah, yes. That, I mean, I don't want to kind of spoil anything. Um, so, yes, I think the trailer probably gives that much away. But let's say that there are violent events which follow on from the uh, administration of medication um, and that uh, Jude Law came in for a web chat last week and the transcript for that's on the site where you can go and have a read. Um, and he was saying when he read the script, he called up Steven Soderbergh and said, so is my, my character the good guy or the bad guy? <laughs> and Soderbergh said, yes, exactly. And that's pretty much how it plays in the movie. Does he have normal teeth? That's what exactly what I was saying. <laughs> does he have an Australian accent and he, snaggle tooth? For no reason whatsoever. Uh, no, he does not. So uh, maybe that means he's a good guy. I interviewed Lorenzo Di Bonaventura, the producer yep. of this, um, on the set of Red 2, and he was talking about how Jude Law is the secret weapon in this film. He's, he's absolutely terrific in it. It's a really changeable performance in the sense that your view of the character changes radically from moment to moment while at the same time you know he's being very coherent and he's he's making a lot of sense so it's a really really interesting both as a piece of writing i think um, and also as you know as a performance by law um but yeah absolutely kind of terrific work all around we gave this four stars and uh, and i thought i thought it was worth every one frankly how do you rank this with haywire and contagion i would say it's probably better than both probably maybe mm-hmm. not as as intensely lovable as magic mike jude law though i think he's he's someone that seems to be really aging well not physically as an actor well, also physically he strikes me as someone who's really happy i mean people looking at him, his yeah. hair's falling out a little bit you know even as young looking as he used to be blah 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 but he seems liberated by that in a way and he's doing mm. new and interesting roles that seems to be that seem to be kind of i thought he was the best thing in anna karenina as far as acting was concerned yeah he was terrific in that and uh you know unusual start opening up new vistas for him and i think more power to him yeah, he's, he's, he's seemed. I mean, good. when he came in to, to chat to us, he seemed really kind of happy with where his life was at, and you know, very, happy with the work he was doing. He had a very nice scarf. I would be happy yeah. if I had that scarf. He 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 did. He smelled really good as well. 
without wishing to sound creepy. No comment, too late. <laughs> okay, and last but not least is Robot and Frank, which is the story of an elderly cat burglar played by Frank Langella, who gains a new lease of life uh, when his son, who's played by James Morrison again, um, gets him a robot care assistant. Um, so was this a mechanical masterpiece, Phil? Not far away, actually. Yeah. It's. I would urge anyone that hasn't come across it to Google, we've got some clips online, Google some of the clips and you really get a feel for the very particular comic tone this movie strikes. There's a serious element to it. There's Frank Langella, this this guy that's that's kind of old and, and past it and a, you know as we said as you said a burglar has this flirtation this shy flirtation with um Susan Sarandon who's a librarian and and his 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 son is concerned for him James Marsden's concerned for him and his is failing health so he gives him this robot it's kind of set now but in a sci-fi yeah, slight, now slightly nearer future yeah. maybe yeah. he's a little bit like a sort of cross between Robocop and To Catch a Thief <laughs> <laughs> yeah no I was going to say well, cross between Jarvis and the Smash robots from if you remember the old Smash means Mash ads yeah a little bit like that but the robot kind of gets caught up in his they kind of change each other in a funny way and um, it's very entertaining it's very funny it's not going to ask you deep science fiction questions or, or, or you know, treaties on the mm. meaning of existence. Um, but it's 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 full of laughs and uh, great performances. Absolutely. I'm a sucker I mean, for, as you'd expect from this cast. Yeah, I'm a sucker for any movie with cat burglars in it. <laughs> Are they even a thing? Do you, do you have cat burglars still? And presumably this is set slightly in the future, so... So they'd be, what, dire wolf burglars? Well, um, that's fantasy, Phil. That's oh, not is it? Okay. Yeah, that's Game of Thrones. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, Cat Burglar's good. I'm in. Yeah. All right then. Yeah. And also, whilst we're on books and it being Book Week, yeah. Frank Langella's autobiography is well worth hunting Very down. Very good point. That That's uh, full of more anecdotes than you can shake a stick at, isn't it? Yeah. Why well, would you shake a stick at an anecdote? <laughs> I, I don't know. Maybe it was threatening you or yeah, something? Maybe it ang- yeah, maybe it made you angry. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Okay. Um, so also out this week, uh, Jason Statham's tangling with Jennifer Lopez and Parker, which got three stars. Ali, I know you saw that. What did you think? I'm a big Statham fan, although I am a very big Statham fan. I was disappointed with this. It kind of does the job. Uh, it's very. It feels very cheap and rough around the edges. If you aren't already a Statham fan, fan don't expect this to change your mind uh, it is pretty much bog standard statingness and um, Jennifer Lopez her character I feel is far too big for what the character actually needs in the film so don't go expecting another out of sight how is the Stafe's Texan accent it is hilarious but it's not played for laughs oh that sounds double hilarious <laughs> yeah darn tootin partner <laughs> Amazing. Okay. Also this week, um, Barbara Streisand is teaming with Seth Rogen on the guilt trip, which is like just in time for Mother's Day. Uh, but maybe beware of taking your mum to that one because it only got two stars. Um, also out, uh, something that went straight to DVD in the US, Josh Duhamel, uh, Bruce Willis and Rosario Dawson experiment in thrillers with in Fire with Fire. That only got one star. So maybe don't rush for that wow. one. Um, and if you're very lucky, you might find yourself somewhere near uh, a cinema that's showing the reissued Princess Bride, which is getting a limited uh, re-release this weekend, um, because someone up there doesn't want us to get used to disappointment, which is lovely of them. And that's it for this week. Uh, You can join us next week for more film-related fun, where we'll be joined by Erin Creevy and Mark Strong to talk about their new film Welcome to the Punch. And Warwick Davis will be in to discuss his newly Blu-rayed fantasy film Willow and his stellar career all round. We'll also have the latest on magician tale The Incredible Burt Wonderstone and Can Shocker the Paperboy, and much, much more. So do join us for that. Until then, it's goodbye from Nick. Goodbye. 
Goodbye from Ali. Goodbye. And goodbye from Phil. Goodbye. And it's a goodbye from me. Toodaloo.